Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, The Candyman, Episode 2, Evil Unearthed. So when the media heard about the bodies being found in the boat shed, they began to descend on the property in droves. They had no words to explain what had happened there. The Houston newspapers at the time described Dean Coral as a homosexual fagan of a mass murdering. Fagan refers to a person who teaches others crime. Other newspapers at the time say he was a nice guy, even known to flirt and date girls in high school. Family members are quoted at saying he was a good boy, maybe too good. You never even saw him with a cigarette. At the time, he was referred to as Houston's mass murderer. And at that point in time in the United States, he was the largest mass murderer that they had on record. So if he was the largest mass murderer, you know, why didn't they not refer to him as a serial killer at that time? So at that time, the serial killer phrase was not actually used. The term serial killer is used to describe a case for... Um, used to describe a case hadn't come around for years. The term was first used in England in 1974 in a lecture at the Staff Police Academy. The FBI defines serial killer as a person who unlawfully kills two or more persons in separate incidences. Between 1970s and 2000s, it's used now to describe the... um, Between 1970 and the 2000s, it's actually described as the golden area golden age of serial killing. I think we've talked about this in our last season about a little bit about why that was for the golden age of serial killing. But for people who don't really know, technology hadn't necessarily, it wasn't at the point that it was today. Today you have a lot of cameras, DNA, all sorts of things that people believe catches these people earlier on. Sure. I mean, you can barely go anywhere without you know, the eyes in the sky, so to speak, you know, being on camera or even your phones will ping you somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, so. And then DNA certainly has become, I mean, even farther than it was three years ago. The advancements in in genetic genealogy are, are staggering. So you didn't have those advancements in from 1970 to 2000, but then there has to be a lot there about, um, the factors of urbanization. You have now a lot of these small towns becoming large cities, more people going into larger urban areas. And so you tend to have more of the serial killer type activities. In 1989, it actually, actually had started to steadily describe to decline and so less and less serial killing then but part of the reason that they started to look at that was longer prison sentences too so you have less people paroled on some of these small type prison sentences and um people stay in jail a lot longer and so the thought is that you're able to 
catch these people before maybe you have the long run. And don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that we don't have serial killers amongst us today. I'm a true believer that we still have serial killing activity. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Um, so the serial killer term doesn't come out until a much longer. And then he gets this name, the candy man very early on. He's referred to in newspaper articles as the candy man. And then when serial killers kind of start to be more and more known and you have books and that kind of thing written on, it, that's where the title, certainly the candy man takes, you know, he gets the named, we become pretty famous for the naming our serial killers yeah. in some way. So. so after that first day of digging, um, police then decide to close it up for the night and start fresh the next day. That next day, police did want to talk to Henley again. He wanted, um, but Henley Rhonda and Tim had all been kept overnight for questioning. So that same morning as they're getting ready to talk to Henley about getting more information and finding out more from him, a boy by the name of David Owen Brooks turns himself in for questioning. So David Owen Brooks immediately confessed to assisting Coral and finding young victims. Brooks explains that the boys had to be young and good looking henley and brooks and coral sometimes works together finding young men um, by driving around in coral's vans they sometimes also work separately the boys would go out and then bring these young victims to coral's apartment where there would be parties um, usually plied by alcohol drugs um, alcohol pot marijuana um, and um, paint sniffing a lot of times too. So they held these parties at Coral's house a few times a week. Brooks and Henley both admitted that they had preyed upon their um, friends and that they had grown up with, bringing them over. Brooks even admitted that he had brought Henry to Coral's house with the intention of him becoming the next victim. But Coral took a liking to Henley, and soon he was bringing his own friends over to Coral's residence. You know what's so crazy to me about that is the fact that they're bringing their friends there. Right. You know, people they've grown up with in the neighborhood and turning them over to this guy, right? And... You know, even when the families of the missing boys would reach out to Brooks and Henley, you know, and ask them if they had seen them, do they know anything, you know, they became involved in assisting the families in these searches, knowing what has happened to them, which is so bizarre to me that you could just be so calm and almost cruel to those families, you know, by giving them that hope and trying to, you know, help them find their their missing boys and hanging up, you know, posters, missing persons and going door to door. It's crazy to me. Yeah, I know that, you know, one of these boys who um, was um, killed by Coral was actually Henley's best friend growing mm -hmm. up. And their parents, their mothers were best friends themselves for right. something like 15 years. I mean, these 
these kids actually played together as infancy. I mean, you would think they'd almost be like brothers. Right. And you just, you don't even think about it, you know? I can't, I just can't imagine those four families. I also heard something about like Henley would um, kind of like make up stories. You know, one time he actually told a girlfriend of one of the victims that he had been involved, that the victim had actually been involved in the mob and that's what had happened to him and this, that the mob had gotten him. Yeah, the mob's in Pasadena recruiting 15-year-olds. You so, know? I, it's horrible. Uh-huh. So the next day, police officers and uh, anthropologists packed up both Brooks and Henry and they headed to... Uh, the beach of High Island. High Island is located near Galveston Island off the Bolivar Peninsula. So you can get there in two ways. You can actually take the Galveston Ferry um, across from Galveston Island, or you can drive Interstate 10 out of Houston. Driving from Coral's house on Lamar Street would take about an hour and 20 minutes to get to the location where the graves were located off of the Whitney exit. The road, that road goes back on the beach and then it's a um it's a paved road for a little while and then you end up on the beach where you can drive uh on the beach for about a half a mile till you get to the dunes and that's where the graves were located one of the graves located that day was the grave of jeffy jeffrey conan who had been picked up um hitchhiking in 1970 this grave at this at still today is considered to be Coral's first victim. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this was before he began to use Brooks and Henley. So he's kind of out trolling on his own. They said, um, they only knew about this grave because he, um, Coral had shown them and, um, its location. They said that one time Coral and Henry had gone out, um, to the beach and, they had found that one of the graves a person was partially exposed. So they had to rebury the body. This time they placed a sheet rock, which is just like a large flat rock is what he's referring to on uh, top of the grave. One of the things that I find surprising about this whole conversation about the rocks is it's very difficult out there to find rocks. Yeah, I know. You know, it's a difficult process. So, yeah. Oh, you know, I don't know that it ever got delved into a, a bit, you know, whether or not they were finding those at this location, because after that, they began placing rocks on every single one of the graves that, of the people that they brought out there. Um, or if they, um, if they brought the rocks from another location in order to make that happen. But um, just from my perspective, I thought that was very strange. It is very strange. I mean, there's not even like I would say a whole lot of driftwood that you see out right. there, and that you know, even considering that it's a body of water, right there, you just don't really see that. Well, it's not a rocky beach, no. and Texas is not a rocky area, you know, because especially where we are now, I mean, you get farther up toward Lake Sam Rayborn, you can find a lot more rock, but down in here, you don't find that. Mm -hmm. Um, no, anyway, interesting point there. So law enforcement, um, it was an eerie scene. 
um, you have law enforcement, Brooks and Henley out there. Brooks and Henley are basically sitting quietly on the beach talking. Um, both are kind of wearing jeans. I think for a long time, Henley has actually taken off his shirt. Yeah. So it really almost looks like a day at the beach for these young teenage boys until you kind of notice the law enforcement presence, which they are dressed in, in their, um, uniforms and everything, but then also the backhoes going up and down the beach. Um, so this draws the attention of the beachgoers who are just kind of having a quiet day out there, enjoying the beach, doing, um, setting up their uh, sandcastles, playing in the water. And as they begin the work with the backhoe digging up these remains, the parents begin to watch what's happening. Some of these families quickly pack up and leave, but there are other families who are actually standing there on that beach taking pictures of what's going on at that time. So standing on the beach, Henley looked at detectives and claimed, I can smell a body here. Police examined the area and began to dig, and sure enough, the body was located. That day, six bodies would remove, be removed from High Island. One, at one location, a family had set up a pop-up camper on the beach, beach chairs, a grill, the police came knocking on their door and asked the family to move the camper farther down the beach. The family was traveling with their young son, who was not much younger than the boys that had been located that, that day. Finding out that the family was, was actually just yards from where a young man had been buried was horrifying to this family. I mean, can you imagine being told by police, like, oh, I'm sorry, you're going to have to move? Because you're right on top of a grave. And we don't know how many are out here, right? Essentially, at this point. Right. I mean, can you imagine being that family? It scared them so bad they left. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just... I, I just can't imagine that. Nothing like that's ever happened to me. So, no, you know, nothing's like that has ever happened it's not, to me. It's not a casual day at the beach when that's happening. So, No, and I certainly think, you know, when you're talking about your young son and watching all of this happening... That would definitely be something you want to get him out of there. But again, it kind of shows that whole difference about how things would be done today is what they were done then. I really feel, and the press is right there. You know, the, the press is given full access to being right there, walking along the beach, talking to some of these beachgoers, but also talking to Brooks and Henley who were in custody at the time. Right. You know, I mean, they're, they're talking to the officers, they're talking to Brooks and Henley, you know, I just, again, you know, no decision to shut down that beach at that point and get all of those people off of there. Mm -hmm. So. Okay, after the sixth body was uncovered on High Island, Henley and Brooks both believed that there were more bodies located out there, but police abruptly ended the search that day. The search at all three locations actually stopped at that point in time, and no more searches would go on. The police did say that they would go out and search at a later time, but at that point in time, now there have been searches in more years later, more recent years but at that point in time that is basically the end of the searching for human remains in this case so 
what would be the driving force for them just to abruptly stop? Is it because because it's not like Hen, Henley and Brooks are saying, that's it. That's all that was out there. They keep insisting there's more bodies. They've said it about the boat shed. They've said it about Sam Rayburn. And they've said it here, too. You know, I think there could have been a lot of factors that played into this. One is they couldn't actually. So you have both Brooks and Henley out there. They're not really able to say, okay, there's one located here. Or, you know, it's not a small location like the boat shed where, you know, at that point, they really felt like they had turned over every piece of earth. I partly believe that probably there was nothing else located in the boat shed. I think that they dug as far down that was humanly possible for those three people to dig in the boat shed. Mm -hmm. That That's just, I mean, you know, you're talking about a relatively small area with the archaeologists and the anthropologists in there, the forensic team in there at that point in time. I really feel like they, they covered the space in the boat shed. I don't should he have brought in heavy equipment? I don't, I don't know. I think that probably would have caused them to have to actually tear it down. Right. Um, maybe, maybe not, but um, heavy equipment on a body recovery site, that's a little unusual anyway, because I mean, you're damaging anything a lot, you know? I mean, when they do it on high Island, I'm actually surprised that they did it because most body recovery is actually done by hand. Yeah, I mean, I would think so, too, unless they're just thinking it's a lot of sand. I think you know? that was part of it, you and know? sand is incredibly heavy. Uh -huh. And so to try to dig through that, I think, you know, they had to pull down some of those dunes because where they're buried, sand keeps getting deposited there, too. So those dunes kind of get deeper. But, um, but the... I mean, it makes you wonder, too, if they're just, like, going off what Coral said. Right. Right. And it's almost like that whole, you know how sometimes people exaggerate, right? So say Coral's like, oh yeah, I got like 10 bodies out there. Uh -huh. And it may only be six, right? But they only can go off what he has said because maybe they physically weren't involved in those. You know? I think that, you know, it's, it's very strange because I, um, the date from 1970 to 1973 is the only time that he's killing. You know, I think we need to examine that in some future episodes to, to say whether or not we think there could have been victims before, uh, 1970. Um, I mean, I that would be, that would be part of it. Are there victims prior to 1970? Um, and then secondly, what we do know is that more unequivocally there were more bodies located out there in years that came forward we know that there were almost definitely there was another body that was located at high island that still has not been covered recovered today by what brooks and henley tell you know and we'll cover him in a later episode but we know there was another body out there on high island because they said this person was out there and yet they couldn't pinpoint exactly where and this is a misidentified boy later on, but later when they go back and look at their statements, they were like, they were saying that he was not in the boat shed, that he was on high island. Um, could there be any bodies located there today? Doubtful. High Island was basically obliterated after Hurricane Ike. Right. The dunes were, were washed out. It was under um, water for a period of time. And so the thought process and 
even Harvey comes in later, doesn't do doesn't leave it under water as long as as Ike. But I mean, Ike certainly goes in and devastates that area. You know, you lose almost all the buildings out there. Right. Um, so trying to find anything out there now would be impossible. At Sam Rayborn, I wonder whether or not there's a chance and possibility at Sam Rayborn, but there is another victim who is discovered in 1983 that pretty much is believed to be a victim of this crime. Right. And that they didn't discover until 1983. So Henley and Brooks saying there were more bodies and them calling off this search. There's no doubt. You can't say there weren't more bodies. There were more bodies. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the whole location of Sam Rayborn and now you've got me saying it like that, but it's Rayburn. Oh, so Rayburn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, um, so, you know, it's so secluded, You, I almost feel shocked that there's not more, you know, because of how, I guess he would have more time. I think, you yeah. know, with his victims and, and have that ability to kind of hide and the do it. The only you know? reason that I've ever believed that there were not more out there is this possibility that he had a fear that if a, if they were found on that location, they were going to say that, that it was going to put two and two back together for mm-hmm. him. You know, and so that's the only reason I have believed that probably he was like, oh, Sam Rayborn is too close to home. Right. You know, um, but then why why call it off? Why not have this continual search? And the other thing is, at the end of this episode, we're going to play a clip, clip of Henley saying, I never said that there were 30 bodies. I only ever said there was 24, which I actually think the police convinced him to go out there and say that. Because they wanted to get this idea that there was no need for continual searches away from people. Oh, uh, yeah. So, um, and... And so we'll play that clip at the end because that's the most interesting part that I think of that clip. But why the police would suddenly decide to do this, I think part of it might have been because of Blaine. You know, the media was starting to look at the police and say, how could so many of these young boys go missing under your watch and for you to not have noticed? And so many of them from the same neighborhood. Right. I mean, if that's not telling you something's going on there. You know, and then, you know, the police are basically coming back out and saying that, you know, it's not their fault for not knowing or not locating these young boys, that it's the parents' fault for not keeping better track of them. Um, So they're kind of trying to put that back on the parents. But parents were coming to them. There were parents who had hired detectives. And the other thing is they're like, there was no reason for them to suspect that anything like that had gone on. Well, there was because there was actually an anonymous tip um, saying that Brooks had murdered somebody. Mm -hmm. So you have this coming out where there's this anonymous tip and I get it. It's anonymous, but nobody goes out and talks to Brooks. Right. And and we do know that, there are some victims that got away before right. this. Before there are the victims, big discovery, yeah, right? There are so, victims who got away. You know, I don't know. It's it's hard to believe and it's hard for me to believe that Coral was only doing that between those couple years. Like what would break all of a sudden 
in your, I guess, psyche to make you start killing and torturing? You know, like, I actually think that's a great question that we're going to start to try to look at in the next episode. You know, I mean, there has to be something leading up to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that just seems just odd to me. Yeah, because I have my own theories on why he started at that point, but I think it's a fantastic episode uh, because we're going to go into Coral and what was going on in his life and different things that were happening with him. And so it kind of brings up, you know, was there something that happened that made right. that break start happening? What what is that one thing that makes you start to to kill somebody right you know um but then um the press is just really at that point are are feeding off of each other there's they're referring to different things that are going on that day um kind of some of it tends to be rumor like too right so right. you know that that tends to be going on and i don't know if it was if it was the police uh effort to try to put some control over this or to p try to put a pin in this and be done you know um but i don't know though i mean wouldn't you think they'd be even more curious like especially when he comes out um when the um i think it's the police chief comes out and basically says that they had hundreds of missing boys yeah and the fact that they only stayed on record for 30 days yeah. you know i mean that's incredible so think and, about some parents who may not have realized it was only 30 days and didn't keep updating those reports i mean right and you know i mean when you think that they had hundreds of missing boys in that area and then over the next days weeks and even years letters from distraught parents who are hearing the story are actually sending these letters to this area to try to see if they can you know if one of their boys were involved in this mm -hmm. um so i just yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. I, you know, the one thing I can tell you is that, um, in especially in the last, I believe two to three years, this case has started to be re-examined, and, you know, Tim Miller, who we've talked about quite a bit in our first season. So if you're not familiar with Tim Miller, he is the founder of Texas EquiSearch. Um, after his daughter was found murdered in Calder Field, he developed Texas EquiSearch to search for missing children, more mm -hmm. missing people, really, mm -hmm. actually. I mean, he doesn't just do children. And so he has searched many of these sites. Um, the Sam Rayburn site has been one that he's searched, but he's also actually searched the last home that um, Coral actually lived in. So, you know, we've searched the yard there too. Um, I don't think that I've heard about searches on High Island, but I do know that he's searched a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. And I guess one more thing I want to say before we kind of wrap this up, but, you know, all three locations where these young men were buried essentially are so different from one another. Yeah. You know, you've got one in a boat shed, you've got one in the country wooded area, and then you have them on the beach. I mean, they're just so, such different types of locations, you know? The High Island location surprises me. Mm -hmm. So it is the location that it just... Like, I, I literally looked at you and I was like, I wonder what the connection to him being out there right. was. 
Yeah. You know, like, why was he out there? Well, it's just, like, High Island seems like it would be so easy to have accidentally discovered. And the one question that, you know, I've kind of asked as I've started to try to do this research is I've started to try to figure out whether or not there was a body discovered on High Island during this time or prior to this time. Because it just, you know, the wind, the sand is always moving out there. I mean, the last place that you would think to hide anything was would be in a dune on the, on the beach. Yeah. You know, the erosion was incredible. And so I just, I've always wondered whether or not there was something that got discovered earlier, but just never got connected. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but I think with that, we're going to end today with a clip from um, Elmer Wayne Henley kind of explaining uh, a little bit of, you know, it just, it kind of goes to show you that thing that we talked about earlier that the press had complete access to these oh, two yeah. um and then also and, and he know. was talking oh yeah i mean he was talking you know it's weird when we when you know we're, we're getting this clip and stuff it, i'm like it's almost like he enjoys this like he enjoys the media attention mm-hmm. almost you know and I just it's just it's weird because i almost look at him like he's a victim too but when i see that sometimes i'm like I don't know. It's almost like he's enjoying it. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. You know, I, when we started looking into this, I certainly had a lot of theories on, uh, Henley, you know, and, and going back to that idea of, you know, Coral and why did this start? You know, um, I, but yeah, I kind of look at it the same way Mm -hmm. as you. There's just, there's something about him i mean it's almost like his humanity got shut off mm-hmm. and that could have just been from what he witnessed and right what he was kind of coerced to do i mean we don't know but it's just it's just shocking so well thanks for joining us today and you know enjoy that clip and let us know you know kind of what you think about that yeah that boy turned himself in i have not yet made a statement i didn't make a statement but after he made his so I didn't implicate him. He hung himself. That's all I want to say. I never said there were 30 people. I said 24. The name's Junior, not Elmer.